Hey everyone, how's it going? And welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for music, movies, and more. I'm your host, Max Bowen. Diagnosed with an aggressive terminal cancer in 1998, Glenn Rockowitz was told he had three months to live. After the diagnosis, his father prayed to take his cancer away from him. So when Glenn's father received his own terminal diagnosis less than a week later, the two faced their final moments of life alone and together. That journey is captured in Rockowitz's new book, Cotton Teeth. In this interview, Glenn talks about the day he received the diagnosis, his conversations with his father, and how their relationship changed during the treatment. Folks, for this episode, I am very, very happy to be talking to, well, he's got a long list of titles over the years, but we'll just go with SNL writer, voice actor, cancer advocate, and author Glenn Rockowitz joins me to talk about his recently released book, Cotton Teeth. It's kind of a, a companion piece of sorts to uh, to a similar book you wrote a few years ago. Uh, Glenn, thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. All right. This book uh, basically looks at the shared journey of yourself and your father when you were both given a terminal cancer prognosis. Um, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, I know that your dad uh, passed away eventually, and I'm sorry for that. Um, yeah. But you yourself survived. You are actually now uh, now a four-time cancer survivor. I am, indeed. And, and that should give you a championship belt. You know, they really should, it really should <laughs> give you this, like, WE-style like, title belt. Just, like, put it over your shoulder. I, I agree. I agree. Or at least, like, a, like a sub sandwich card where they punch <laughs> they punch a card for each for each cancer it's like I'm I'm like one liver cancer away from a free sandwich you know, but, or something like that. there you go there you go <laughs> and entrance music you gotta have entrance music so like every time you yes. walk into something it plays you know, walk around the belt and show like yeah that's me guys that's me I like that I, I like that you know I might I may have to I may have to steal that I like uh, maybe like Leonard Skinner's Simple Man or something there you sounds go. good sounds like semi humble because there's nothing humble about the big gold belt, so exactly, exactly. All right, but but again, this book really looks at the shared journey of yourself and your father. So the story behind this one is that you were given um, a terminal cancer prognosis, about uh, three months to live. This was back in 1998, and your father basically prayed to take your cancer away. And then a little while later, he was diagnosed with a similar prognosis. Um, there's a lot yeah. to dive into in this one, but I think I want to ask first, like, um, about your dad. Like, what kind of person was he, and how did you react when you heard that he was basically praying to take away your disease? I mean, uh, incredulous would be the first word, because uh, he because he was a pretty devout atheist. So, so the fact that he was praying at all was was shocking to me. Um, but uh, you know, when I was originally diagnosed, <clears throat> it was excuse me. Um, it was basically two weeks before my son was born, my only child. Um, and so my wife was eight and a half months pregnant and, uh, and I didn't tell her because my doctor was saying that I had like roughly three months at best. And, uh, so I was just in total shock. I was only 28 years old, so I was in total shock and I hadn't had symptoms and just crazy. So I went to Boston, um, to, uh, to my dad's house and, uh, gave him the news and he uh, prayed that night that God should give him cancer so that I live. And then seven days later, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, uh, given the similar prognosis. And I, you know, I should say like, it's, it sounds insane because, but the reality was like he had been complaining about stomach pain for 
uh, you know, for a year or so. So it wasn't like uh, he prayed and then the, the wish was granted. He had been uh, unknowingly sick for a while. Um, but nonetheless, you know, he now had that to contend with. And so both of us were kind of staring down the barrel of we only had, you know, a few weeks, months to live at this point. So that was uh, that was a, a crazy experience because during my my son was born the first day of chemo, my first day of chemo. So um, it was just that the timing was nuts, basically. Yeah, un- unbelievable. Now, um, as you mentioned, you didn't uh, tell your wife um, yeah. about this, but what was like the foremost like thing in your mind, like you know, just being given not only hey you have cancer, you also have three months to live. Like, what was the thing that you thought? okay, this is like first thing I got to do. You know, it's interesting because I, I I think I was in so much shock, you know, like when I got the news, it was in Manhattan and I got the news and, and I took the subway home and I don't really remember getting home. It was just, everything was just very blurry and, and I, I was just I, totally in disbelief. And, um, you know, so I did. So I never really gave much thought to like what I would do with my time because I, I I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that I was going to be dead in three months. You know, um, I think I think I've I've changed behaviorally since um, that diagnosis in terms of how I view life and and taking risks and doing the things I want to do. But at that time, I think I was in just total shock. You know. Yeah, I'll I'll bet. I mean, like I. I can remember when my mom was diagnosed, you know, it was just like a normal day, regular thing, nothing unusual. And I get to the hospital and I hear this and I'm like, I can't like fit this like in my skull. Yeah. I I think it was a while. I think it was, it wasn't really, it really wasn't until she began her chemo that I thought, okay, this is real. This is really happening. Wow. And what, what kind of cancer did she have? She had a leukemia. Yeah. Oh, leukemia. how's she doing unfortunately she passed away about a year later uh, she oh, fought she, she fought like hell though she fought like hell yeah. i mean oh, wow. the, the thing is she never really thought of this as the end you know she was thinking about okay yeah. like you know long term i might not be around for as much longer i gotta do this yeah. i gotta do that but it was like it was never really a a stopping point she never thought okay this is it she thought mm. no nope, this is just a thing i gotta deal with and i'll deal with the consequences yeah. when they happen um wow but wow. um uh, you talked earlier about though your own priorities, like your own life, how you think of things differently. How yeah. do you think the Glenn from before all this and the Glenn from after this? What would you say is like the biggest change in how you approach things? I mean, I th- I, th- I think it's I think it's perspective. I mean, it, there's there's no way there's no way to say anything that doesn't sound totally cliche, but it really, um, I just don't have the fear of things the way that I used to have the fear. Like I don't have the anxiety and the depression that you would think would, would settle in there with having three additional cancers and stuff. But I just kind of, um, I mean, there's no, there's no delicate way to, to put it and also no way to make it sound, not sound like a cliche, but like, I'm genuinely grad, just grateful every day that I am alive. Like genuinely, like people go, Oh, I'm grateful. I'm alive. Like, no, but like, I think about it. Every day, even when shit is terrible and I go, uh, oh, you know, this, this is an awful day or somebody's treating me like hell or, you know, whatever. I still go, man, I'm still lucky that I get to experience this, 
you know, even as, as bad as it is. So every time I see a shitty movie or a bad TV show, I'm like, oh, this was a waste of time. I'm like, but man, I was lucky to see that, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. You know, at least you got to see this thing and you get to like make jokes yeah. about it and talk about it like with your friends. Exactly. Exactly. So I, you know, and that's, and that's a big perspective shift because it has definitely changed. It changes the way I approach everything in life, you know? So it ha- it has been good in that regard. And I find that to be true with a lot of cancer survivors. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think people automatically assume they're just, you know, they're either reckless or they just are apathetic. But I, uh, I think it's like a diff- just a new appreciation for life in a way. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Especially when you get to the news that, hey, it could be over in 90 days. I, I can't imagine, yeah. you know, what do yes. I do with that time? It's... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, getting the other cancer uh, diagnoses over the years, did the do you did you approach those any any differently as like as they happened? And did you? Um, you know, I think I don't think that initial shock ever changed. Mm. Um, but the the how long it lasted after I heard the diagnosis, you know, like th- that changed dramatically, because I think I had a lot of hope after surviving a pretty unsurvivable cancer. That you know, if I if I just caught things early enough, I'd be able to to get through. And if not, I I, I had a good run. I I got very lucky to have whatever time. I, you know, I wasn't supposed to see my son live past three months, and now he's twenty three years old. So <clears throat> that's uh, pretty amazing. Like uh, whatever t- all the time that I've gotten, I'm I'm lucky for. Mm-hmm. Genuinely, definitely. Um, I'd like to ask a bit about the journey that you took with your father as you both kind of dealt with your own uh, diagnoses and the treatments that followed. What was your relationship like before this? We were very close. Um, <clears throat> you know, he was because he was a psychologist. He was nuts. You know, so uh, which is why I became a comedian. I think, <laughs> um, but uh, but he was super intuitive. Uh, you know, into general, just sort of behavioral things. There are so many terrible shrinks out there. And uh, he was not one of the bad ones. And there's a lot of them. Some of them are in my family. I won't mention any names. But um, <laughs> but uh, he was he was a super bright uh, and thoughtful guy. Nuts, but, but, but thoughtful. And he, you know, inadvertently passed on a lot of wisdom to me in those final weeks. Um, you know... Like one example, like his whole career, he was so against medication. He just thought, you know, medication is not the answer. The answer is to get to the root of things and figure them out and figure out behaviorally to change them and to make things better. Um, And then in the very final few weeks of his life, the doctor put him on Zoloft. and, uh, And he said to me like a few weeks in, he said, you know what, Glenn, it's like, holy shit, if if I had known I could have felt normal like this at any point in the last 10 years, I would have happily taken it. I, it was a mistake, you know, like I think, you know, somewhere in our family, there's, there's clinical depression and, and sometimes maybe, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or talk therapy is not enough. And so he became sort of a, a convert at the very end of his life. You know. how, uh, how about you? Did, uh, did you find that your uh, like viewpoint on like uh, medical science or therapy or anything mm-hmm. like really like, like really changed because of this? Uh, you know, I I I was always kind of like um, you know because I spent a chunk of my life in Arizona and you know lots of 
lots of people wearing turquoise and and telling me to suck on a cactus in order to cure so many things and i'm like yeah i don't know about this it's hard to come from the east coast and and get into the woo-woo stuff you know um so i was always a little bit of a cynic in that way um but uh, you know, and and I still am. I think in many ways because I'm alive because of of Western medicine. There's no doubt. You know, um, but it's not to discount. You know, all the other things that actually are helpful in terms of nutrition and, and you know, I, I'm I'm just not f- far into that other category of like the conspiracy or like that someone's got a cure for cancer somewhere. Because I'm you know I'm thinking if that if someone's got a cure for cancer. Right. Like that guy, clearly that guy doesn't care about money because otherwise he would have been the richest man in the world. And so so he's already by nature. He's a dick. Right. And (laughs) and so and even if that that's the case now, he's keeping it just for himself. You know, it's I don't know. I just I I find it all sort of hard to believe. But um, so I I am a big I'm a big believer in, in Western medicine, but I also have over the years realized the holistic nature of it and just the, the need to sort of incorporate a lot of things, meditation and, and nutrition. And, you know, and I was not a guy you would ever, I could ever picture meditating, but it's actually been helpful to me. So, uh, so, you know, so there you have it. I mean, who knew? Hey, man, you never know. I mean, like, I think it definitely changes your whole perspective because you learn about all these different things. Like, okay, yeah. this could work. Sucking on a cactus, maybe not so much, but yeah. you know. But like you said, like, like, like holistic treatments, um, yeah, meditation. There there's especially like meditation too. I think for the stress and the anxiety that must be just going yes. through you, even if you have a more like treatable form of cancer, you're still gonna be stressed the fuck out. Yes. I mean, a hundred percent, you know, it's, it's like, you know, the world's coming at you at, at 90 miles an hour all the time. And you have this ambient fear like that you're swimming in all the time. So, so meditation is super helpful in like just getting you in, in a more present place instead of constantly freaking the fuck out about, about what tomorrow holds, you know? So in that way, I think it's helpful and, you know, and things like weed and CBD and, you know, like, I think all that stuff, um, is super helpful when it comes to, you know, just even getting your appetite back while you're on chemo is, you know, it like that stuff. I've always been a proponent, you know, and, and I'm actually still very much a proponent of psychedelic, you know, f- for not for cancer treatment, but for for everybody on the planet to maybe get over themselves and realize that we're just part of this big cosmic shithole and together and, and uh, you know. <laughs> It is what it is. I don't disagree with you. I do not yeah. disagree with you at all. Calm the <laughs> fuck down, people. Exactly. Stop getting, you know, get over yourselves. You're not, you're not that big of a deal. You ain't exactly. that big of a deal. Even, even we are nothing. Do you um, take more chances now when it comes to like trying new things or doing like new stuff or say, you know, what, I'm going to take that trip to, you know, like middle of nowhere and just see what's the, yes. there. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks. Definitely worth watching, but it's, you know, the, the premise is basically, um, you know, he dies in some shitty car accident <laughs> um, and he has to, you know, he goes to this sort of middle ground between Earth and, and heaven where he has to, where every human being has to go to court and defend all the dumb shit they did in their life in a courtroom. So, like, they take him back and they show him, you know, well, you know, how about this day when you were 17 and you were saying, well, you know, don't invest in Casio. You know, and he said, and how did that work out? You know, so uh, it, I, I feel like um, 
I have a, a lot of that sort of same uh, sort of approach to things when I go, well, if I'm going to have to defend my life, I'm, I'm going to go out knowing that I did everything I could to, to, to make things better, you know, like mm-hmm. not, not, not just recklessness for the sake of being reckless or, or being an asshole or, but it's, it's really like doing, doing, doing things that, that put good things out into the world, you know, cause there's, there's, there's way too much fucking darkness, you know, right now and always i guess exactly so uh this book is be is is i described as being both darkly funny and deeply moving uh what role does um humor play in the overall message i mean it's a huge part of it because it's a huge part of my life you know and and i really think you know it started as a coping mechanism because i sucked at sports so you know when the when we'd have gym class and they'd throw me out into the outfield i was like well i'm gonna take my pants off and run around to get some laughs because there's no way i'm catching that ball you know and so so i kind of knew not being an athlete it was going to be a coping thing for me and with regard to you know with regard to getting sick it's you know it 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 has it, it's all, all it's all throughout the book and it's very dark humor i have <laughs> i've since learned that uh that most of the world doesn't share my sense of humor and that's all right i'm i'm i kind of kind of knew that but um but i feel like if i didn't have if i couldn't break that tension with humor i would have never stopped crying like i i i could not have coped with most of what life has thrown me if if i hadn't been able to just fucking laugh at it you know um or along with it you know in that regard so it it plays a huge part of my huge part of my life still uh what do you hope folks get out of the book uh you know i i hope that my father's the, the things that he imparted to me you know inadvertently in the last few weeks just about life in general i hope people get something out of that and that it that it helps them in some way uh, recognize that things are not as as big as they seem most of the time, and that um, you know I, I just think he had a lot of a lot of really interesting things to say about the world, and I think uh, you know I, I hope people can take some of you know that as his legacy because I think he was a. a while completely fucking nuts, he was a pretty great human. <laughs> any uh, any uh, particular uh, like interesting things or like uh, um, uh, words of wisdom that he kind of imparted to you over the years? Uh, you know, like <clears throat> like I, I remember I, sa- I said to him, I'm like, well, we're both going to be dead soon. I said, so why don't you just answer me like some of the basic basic questions about life. I said, like, w- like why do some days I wake up and I want to take on the world and then other days I never want to get out of bed and I, and he's like, well, that's the dumbest question. He's like, that's, <laughs> he said, that's like psych 101. He said, everything is cyclical and everything is seasonal. And, um, <clears throat> and he said, you know, and I said, well, what about depression? And he said, he said, my take on depression is my depression is the brain's inability to picture a future for itself. And he said, so if, if you have things to look forward to, you know, if if you, uh, you know, if you feel a sense of purpose or joy in your life, like the depression will likely not set in in those cases, he said. But it's like wet cement, <clears throat> and that if you if you just sit there, it will 
dry and harden and you won't be able to get up. He said, so you do have to keep kind of moving. And I know it may sound all like cliche stuff, but that's stuff I hadn't really thought about. And, um, you know, cause he would say you could fall into a stream and drown if you stay there. He said, so, you know, he said, so the, the key is, you know, is to just keep going. Like I remember being a teenager and getting depressed about shit and he would come in my room and open the shades and, let the light in and I'm like god what a dick man just leave me alone (laughs) and uh but he was like forcing me to get the hell out of the room even you know he he said tomorrow may not be better but it'll be different you know and difference kind of the only way to get to better so you know I, 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 I I held on to those things quite a bit yeah that's really good advice, actually. I, I like that. You know, because you know, there's always that the more like positive cliches, like "Oh, tomorrow will be amazing." Well, yeah, it might, it might not. Actually, it might su- suck. But hey, yeah, and he said that. Yeah, won't be today. There's that. Yeah, he said it'll just be different. Yeah, but different is an opportunity to make things better. You yeah, know exactly. So. Why write this book in the first place? I mean, given everything you've been through, given everything that you that you do, what made you say, "Hey, I want to actually write about this and share the story." Uh, I think because I, I, I didn't expect to live, you know, um, and you know, my, when my son was very small is when I sort of started writing the first book, uh, to which this is kind of a second part of, uh, and you know, I, I felt like, I felt like I wanted at the, the first book I wrote called Rodeo and Joliet, um, was, was a way for me to because uh, I didn't think I was going to live past that second cancer so I wanted him to know who I was and so in the, in this new book there's a letter that I wrote to him that's verbatim and um, you know I, I feel like it encapsulates everything that I am and everything that I believe uh, in a way that <laughs> is super snarky, um, but also loving at the same time. I, you know, I think if nothing else in this book, that letter, um, and the, you know, the, the agent, wa- my, my editor wanted to cut that letter out of the book. And I, I, for some reason I st- stuck to my guns on it and I, and it's the thing I hear most from readers is like, that's the thing that stuck with them was that, that, letter so so i'm hoping you know i'm hoping people i I wrote the letter i mean i wrote the book originally for my son to know who i am but this new book cotton teeth i wrote really as a as a way for people to know like in a broader sense that they're not alone and that and that you know as horrific as shit get because it gets pretty dark in the book like as horrific as it gets you know Tomorrow will be different. What was it like for you to like revisit the really hard times as you were writing the book? I mean, it was uh, it was difficult. The the you know some of it way more than others. I wound up cutting out uh, you know a part of the book where I talked about a suicide attempt, um, and because it felt like it was just too much to put into this book. But uh, but I'm glad that I wrote about it because it was interesting to see my frame of mind at that time and, and how far I've come since. And I'm glad I am that I didn't succeed, you know, um, 
because with any of the with any of the bad stuff like the new cancers there's been a million things more positive that have come out of it you know even if they're just positive to me you know like i like i wouldn't have seen the sopranos as a show <laughs> i wouldn't have seen breaking bad or there's some of this the new show severance is so goddamn good i'm like man there's like I have, there's so many great shows and, and things and plays and you know that that I got to see that I wouldn't have music that I would, you know, I'm a crazy fucking music fanatic. And, um, so like bands that I never, I would have never heard, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm answering the question, but that's, I have trouble tracking sometimes. <laughs> I get you, man. I get you. Um, this letter uh, to your son, um, <clears throat> what did you write in the letter? Like, you know, what did you want to like pass on to him? Uh, well, I could read it to you. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, seriously? Yeah, definitely, man. Um, okay, so so here it is. So now this is my this isn't during my second cancer, and my son uh, was you know probably I don't know four or five years old, and in bed with me as I was recovering, and he was just asleep. So I wrote this, <clears throat> my beautiful boy. I don't know where to start. I'm watching you sleep, and I'm having so many thoughts. I don't feel like I'm, I have any kind of handle on what it is I want to say to you. I have so much to say and so much to share, but I, I don't know how much time I have left. And that's an awful feeling, not knowing how much time you have. So what do I tell you in the time I do have left? Well, great. I'm already not making sense. Well, maybe this is all you need to know about your dad. He made very little sense. I like that. Put it on my headstone. Here lies Glenn. He made very little sense. No one would argue with you. It's surreal to have you in my bedroom by my side, <clears throat> just the same way I did that I was with your grandpa when he was dying. I can't imagine what he was thinking. I can't imagine how he did it, especially worrying that I'd be dead soon, soon after, or even before he died. If that had been us, me and you, I probably would have just thrown in the towel. I really don't know how he did it. I don't know how he stayed so lucid and so measured in the face of all that. Your grandpa was a pretty amazing man. He was tortured by his unquiet mind, but he was so fucking smart. Oh, you'll probably remember that I curse a lot. I've been cursing since you were born, and I'm still convinced you won't curse the way I do because I will have taken the fun out of it. It's not a taboo thing if you hear about it all the time, right? One of Grandpa's doctor friends used to tell me that people who curse do so because they're not smart enough to articulate their thoughts with real words. That guy's a dick. Don't be that guy. That's my first bit of advice. It's possible to know everything and still know nothing, so stay humble. Not false modesty humble, but genuinely humble. Like, humble yourself to the fact that you can always learn more and you can probably learn the most from the people you least expect to learn from. I hope I'm alive long enough to tell you about Grandpa. I promised myself that I would write about him one day, but it's looking more and more like my body's not going to give me the chance. You may have already stopped reading, so I don't know if anything I write beyond this point will matter, but fuck it. I love you more than I love anything or anyone on this planet, and maybe all my shitty decisions will serve as a cautionary tale for you. Maybe they'll help you avoid at least some of the pain I've had to endure. I just hope you make a shitload of your own mistakes because I think the most important thing you can be in life is wrong. It may sound like cliche bullshit, but it's true. Make glorious mistakes. Just make sure you don't ever intentionally hurt anyone along the way, ever. That's the most important part. Don't ever intentionally hurt anyone, ever. By the time you read this, it's possible mom has already gotten remarried, and that's a good thing. She's an amazing woman, and she deserves to be happy. I just hope he's not one of those dicks with the big calves and the ponytail and the hoop earring who never shuts up about wine. 
That guy's probably into cycling, too. Oh, that's my worst nightmare for you. I know I should have bigger concerns, but sadly right now, that's all I can think about. He sounds horrible. I bet his name is Blake. Fuck that guy. See? Not making sense. This is your father. I bet you're proud. Okay, what else? Don't trust any man who wants to work with kids. No normal adult man genuinely enjoys kids. And if they do, it's a big red flag. Stay away from that guy. Kids are mostly horrible, and the only humans who have the strength and patience and emotional range to deal with them are women. It's why women are the better sex. Seriously, close your eyes and think of any problem in the world, and I guarantee you it traces back to a man. Now, I haven't tested these theories in a lab, but I feel pretty confident that I'm right. Okay, what else should I tell you as your father? Drugs. Yes, do them, but only in moderation. If you're still doing them after you're 35 years old, kill yourself. Don't be that guy. Oh, and don't actually kill yourself, ever. The people you leave behind will never be okay again. Never, ever. So no matter how horrific life gets, and it gets horrific, just hang on until tomorrow. Maybe the day after that or the day after that. Grandpa used to love to remind me that nothing in life was static. Everything happens in cycles. That there'll always be a spring after winter, no matter how brutal that winter is. I'm sure you're rolling your eyes, and that's fine. If I'm boring you, go ask your new dad, Blake, to tell you about his backpacking trip through the Netherlands. You back? Good. Okay, what else? Music. Yes, music, 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 music. Immerse yourself in as much of it as possible, as often as possible. Make music if you make music if you can. And if you can't make music, then make music out of whatever the hell you do. If you don't want if you want to spend your life detailing trucks, no problem. Just be the best you possibly can be at. Make music out of it. And since I'm on the subject, let's talk about shitty jobs. You'll have a bunch of them. And the quality of the job has very little to do with how much it pays. The best job I ever had paid me the least, and the worst one paid me the most. Just promise me that you won't be a victim. I hate victims. If your job is shitty, find a new one. Don't be that negative asshole at the office who takes everyone down with them. Someone is paying you. Do the best job you can, and if you don't like where your boat is headed, either take over steering the boat or shut the fuck up and row. Or ask Blake. I bet he'll sell you one of his kayaks. Sorry, I sound way angrier than I actually am. It's just the way your dad's brain works. Hopefully you'll get your mother's brain. It's not pretty in here. Okay, what else? Surround yourself with people who are better than you. Really. It'll make it'll make you work harder and it'll make you better. If you surround yourself with people who are worse, you'll get worse. Sure, you may feel better about yourself during the day, but at night, you'll struggle with the fact that you're the tallest midget instead of the shortest giant. Be the shortest giant. Also, always say yes as often as possible. Grandpa Ron taught me this. I remember once he was offered a commercial job where he had to be on camera driving a tractor. And when his agent asked him if he knew how to drive one, he just said yes. Then he hung up the phone and told me that he had two days to learn how to drive a tractor. And he did. So say yes and figure it out later. Saying yes makes your world bigger the same way saying no makes it smaller. Of course, I can think of a bunch of gross examples where this would be terrible advice. But I trust that you get the gist of what I'm saying and that you'll that you'll use your judgment. Like I said, none of this has been tested in a lab yet. Okay, what else? Be generous, like beyond generous, like retarded level generous. I know everyone thinks your father is generous to a degree that affects his life for the worst, and they're not wrong, but I believe the most important job you can do on this planet is to help other people get better, safer, healthier, stronger, whatever. If everyone tried to do that, even the tiniest bit, the world would probably be a pretty fucking amazing place. Okay, you ready for whiplash? Good. Here's the other thing. People are garbage. So don't ever be generous with the expectation that your generosity will be reciprocated. It usually won't. Expect nothing from people and you won't be disappointed. People who don't know me well think I'm a huge pessimist. Not even close. 
Your father is a disappointed optimist, and he's dumb enough to keep believing that people will do the right thing, and they usually don't. But then you'll meet someone who does, and that's the person who will enhance your life in ways you can't possibly imagine. Oh, shit. You woke up while I was writing that last sentence, so I had to continue this, and now I lost my flow. So if it gets worse, it's your fault. Actually, that brings up something really important. Own your shit. That means if you screw up, and you will, and hopefully a lot, take responsibility for it. It's easy to blame someone else for your shit, but if you do, you'll be trying to jump from your knees. You'll, you'll become bitter and angry at a world that you could have changed if you had bothered to try. Your dad has lots of friends who never stop complaining about how their lives have turned out so differently from how they expected. Of course, I can't relate to that. When I was your age, I prayed every night that my life would be a never-ending battle with cancer and heartache. And you know what? It happened. This is sarcasm. I know. I'm a dick. I'm no better than Blake. I get your point. You don't need to rub it in. Oh, random but important point. Don't trust any adult male who's super into Disney. Something's up. Sorry. You're probably glad I'm dead at this point, huh? Okay, let's talk about love. My grandpa had a friend named Grant who would visit us every year with his wife and go on and on about how wonderful his marriage was and how the honeymoon phase never ended. He was so full of shit. Life is crazy and one love is crazy and wonderful and hypnotic and magical and a million beautiful things all at once. But if it was meant to stay that way, we'd all be dead of heart failure by the time we hit 25. Remember what Grandpa Mel said? Nothing is static. Love is a perfect example of that. It'll eventually calm to a real and natural place, and that's a good thing, and a normal thing, and a healthy thing. It only gets unhealthy if it gets completely static. If the bad parts of a relationship become the biggest parts, then it's time to make a different choice. And if you find yourself in a relationship with someone who creates drama, run or fake your own death. There's enough real drama. There's enough real drama in the world. You don't need to be with someone who manufactures it. Also, never make a choice based on fear. Fear is the enemy of joy. And I promise you that all the choices you make from fear will destroy you over time. Shitty job, shitty relationship. If fear has its way, you'll stay there and you'll make choices that aren't the right, the right choices for reasons of comfort. You have to push through no matter how much it hurts. In fact, I found that the only way I know I'm doing the right thing is by how uncomfortable I am. So do shit that makes you uncomfortable. Do a lot of it. And don't worry what other people have, what other people have. I think there's a Buddhist saying about how comparison is the root of all pain. If, if you weren't sleeping so peacefully beside me, I'd go look it up. I guess you'll have to look it up for me. Or maybe Blake will have it tattooed on his inner thigh. I don't know. I can't do everything for you. What else? Oh, yeah, don't get so into sex that you have to buy equipment. It's great as it is. Put your energy somewhere else. Make the world more beautiful. Love the shit out of people you love and then love the shit out of people you don't know if you could ever love. There's so much darkness in the world. Be one of the bright ones. Bring, be one of the ones who bring light into it. Okay, I'm running out of steam. Well, if you take one thing away from this weirdness, let it be one truism that has never let me down. Don't take advice from someone you don't in some way aspire to be like. Really, this has always been true for me. I'm so open to advice, but when I need advice on things that are really important to me, I only listen to the people who I aspire to be like in some way. I hope that makes sense. I really think it's the only thing that's never not been true for me. Of course, that means if you don't want to be anything like your father, then you should ignore everything I just wrote. And that's okay. I'm sure Blake can tell you cool stuff about Pinot Noir or martial arts or whatever. I don't know. I'm looking at you right now, and I'm watching your eyeballs go back and forth behind your lids, and I'm wondering what you're dreaming about. I don't know how much more of this I'll get to see, but I feel so fucking grateful that I even get to be with you right now, even though I'm in pain and even though I'm really scared. I hope you get to experience a love this strong one day. And if you can't find it, 
Please promise me you'll create it. I love you, Dad. Wow. Sorry, that was longer than I thought it was. Going to be. No, no, that that that's that's a really beautiful letter. It really is. I mean, it's very it's very honest too. Also, fuck this Blake guy. Jesus, man. <laughs> I did, you know, it's like I didn't write it. I didn't write it for anyone to see other than my son. And then I just I discovered it when I was writing yeah. the book. And I was like, you know, this this like I, I did not edit a word of it. I you know I didn't change shitty punctuation or spelling. I just left it as what yeah. as it was. Did this book go through a lot of edits though? Did you find you had to you know change some things, tweak some things, leave some things out? Yeah, I mean, I actually rewrote the entire book three times, like wow. page one rewrite, um, because I just wasn't happy with it. And information came out in in my life that helped me, that, that, that changed the direction of the book, changed how I wanted to write it. So it, it took, uh, the first book took me a couple of years to write, and this one took me almost 10 years. So... How did you know you had it? You know, like how, you know, like when uh, when you're doing all the rewrites and the edits, how did you know, okay, it's done, nothing else needs to be done here, out it goes? Um, I didn't, and I'd still be probably sitting here with it, um, but uh, the manuscript was submitted to Kirkus Reviews in the middle of last year, and they picked it as one of the best books of 2021 in uh, in November of 2021, and so I was like, "Oh shit! I guess I should publish it. If the, <laughs> it should it should be so the so the publisher scrambled to get it out right before the end of the new year, so that it would. Uh, and, and so basically, they told me, "Enough! Stop fucking with it. Just let we got it. Just leave it alone." So. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, quite like a that's uh, quite like a title uh, to give you, like one of the best books of the uh, entire year. Yeah, I was shocked. <laughs> But I was I figured something screwed up, but I don't want to correct him in case it's a typo or something. Who knows? <laughs> Nothing else was actually was actually published that year. You just won <laughs> yeah, exactly. by I thought of, believe me, I thought about that because they're like it's the top 100 books of 20. I'm like I, there better have been more than 100 books that were <laughs> released last year. Otherwise, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> hey man, the win's the win, you know. Exactly. Take, take that W. You take right? that. <laughs> you take that belt and you walk out the champion. It doesn't matter. We're back Great to point. Belts. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Has your son read either of your books? He didn't read the first one because he started to and said it was too painful. And then he he did read this one um, in an early form, and uh, I think he really liked it. So uh, at least he said he did. I mean, if he, I'm paying the rent, so you know, if he's smart, he'll say he liked it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Best book of all time, Dad. You exactly. Got <laughs> Nobody tells a joke like you, Dad. You're the you're the greatest. <laughs> And then he, right. and then he's gonna get like a little, a little bit older and say, "Dad, so there's a couple things I had to, t- I <laughs> exactly. couldn't tell you before." Here we I go. <laughs> it's gonna be like a, it's gonna be like a weekend of him dumping shit on me because it, it, he'll finally be paying his own rent and he'll be like, "All right, listen, I got some things to say to you, old man." <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you could go back and talk to yourself when you first got this diagnosis, what would you say? I think I would say. To, to hold on, mm. to hold on, because shit is going to get unbelievably dark, uh, and, and stuff you don't think you'll be able to survive, but you don't have a choice. And it's one of the things that I wrote in the book, because people will sometimes go, oh, you know, cancer patient, you're so courageous, They're so courageous, so you courageous, and I always go, courage sometimes is just a profound lack of options. 
And, and I think that's the case with a lot of this stuff. Like I'm not courageous. Like the dudes who ran into the, the, the towers on nine 11, when they were coming down, that's courageous. I, I just, I just try to make the best of what I could. I just fought as, as hard as I could for as long as I could. And I don't know if it's courage cause I didn't have much of a choice, but I, I, I did it, you know? I want to ask a bit about uh, uh, the Best Medicine Group. You did um, live comedy shows in the homes of terminally ill patients all over the New York area. How did this whole thing get uh, kicked off? And as a follow-up, what kind of impact do you think you had? Um, you know, I started it after SNL because I just sort of felt like I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing with my life. And, and I was too young to realize that I could just get another writing job somewhere like everyone else did instead i just was like well that was my favorite job like now i lost that i got nothing else to do so uh so i started this organization and, and we would bring like live comedy shows into people's living rooms we would we would bring in a, an actor playing a waiter an actor playing a heckler and we would bring three comics and we would set it up for people who were homebound terminally ill aids and cancer patients and um and like it was just such a cool experience because it wasn't like Patch Adams kind of shit where you know like uh, like I always say that, like we used we used really good comedians like comedians who are now famous like not ones that would make these people look forward to death like we wanted we wanted like good comedians and um, and you know like some some of the you know people like Jim Gaffigan you know like uh, you know became amazing comics and and you know were kind enough at the time to to do these shows and it was super cool um yeah and so you know i didn't continue it when i moved to seattle but um but it, but the years that i was doing it i loved it it was awesome so what is next for you will there be another book are you going to continue some of the outreach work you've done um i think what i well i'm i'm back in school because i'm going to be getting my doctorate in psycho-oncology so i'm I'm going to be hopefully doing, you know, psychiatric work for patients and their family members, um, you know, for cancer patients. And, um, and I, you know, currently like I'm a voice actor now, so I do, I've been the voice of Xbox for 13 years now. And, um, and, you know, T-Mobile I've been doing for 13 years and, um, you know, and it's a, it's an amazing job that I'm very lucky to have and it allows me to do all this other stuff pro bono, you know? Um, and so, so really my only plan for, for the future right now is I'm doing a third book, which is going to be just comedy. It's, it's basically all the pathetic stories from my life. Cause my father used to call me a shit magnet because he would say, like, no matter no matter what's happening in a situation, if it's if it's going to go bad or weird, it's going to happen to you for sure. So, uh, so this is like a compilation of of all those stories that will hopefully make everyone feel really good about their lives, knowing that they're not as dumb as I am, or dumb the done the dumbest shit that I've done in my life. So, all right. All right, well, Glenn, man, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's been great to kind of share the story. Uh, Where do folks go, though, to learn uh, more about you, to get the books? And Yeah, I mean, they can get get the book anywhere. You know, Amazon, um, of course. You know, I'm always a proponent of of the indie bookstores over 
over Amazon whenever you can do it. I think there's a books book bookstore dot org or something or dot com that is like an indie center for you know for for books and um so i always encourage that first but uh but people can find me on twitter at just a ride which is uh a tribute to bill hicks and um and uh yeah and i'm still i'm still writing stuff for medium and other i'm writing something right now for writer's digest that'll be out in a couple months and uh and then you know i might make a second movie to the shitty indie movie I made many, many years ago. So, which I have to scrub the internet of because, you know, you can't become a doctor and have the most politically incorrect movie on the planet <laughs> in circulation. Probably so. not a good idea. Yeah, Probably exactly. Not. <laughs> All right, Glenn. Well, man, thank you again. I had a great time talking with you and definitely folks check out these books, follow him on his socials and uh, just have some hope guys. It eventually thank gets better. Thank you so much, Max. Hi, this is singer Kate Eppers, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout. And that brings this episode to a close. Big thanks to Glenn for joining me, and I highly recommend checking out the book. It's a real powerful read. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com and check the show out wherever you find podcasts as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.